Akili companies, they are all about the Keelian culture and they know people are the most important asset. Recently, Keeley Companies entered a new chapter of their organization and underwent an entire corporate rebrand driven by the same mission and core values. Keeley Companies is a family-owned enterprise of companies across the country. They act as your single source for investment, development, management, construction, and restoration. They are still the same Keeley you know and you love. Just with a fresh, streamlined look, and new additions to the family. Who knows? Maybe you'll see the Keeley K around your time. And when you do, go on in, shake their hand, and tell them John O'Leary sent you. My friends, to learn more about the work they do and where they are, visit them online at KeeleyCompanies.com. Welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. John is the number one national best-selling author of the book On Fire, He's a world-class inspirational speaker, and he's the host of the Live Inspired podcast. John interviews extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more fully live your life story. Here's your host, John O'Leary. Well, hello, my friends, and welcome to the Live Inspired podcast with John O'Leary. You know, I love bringing you guests week after week to inspire you to live up to the fullness of your life. And today's guest is going to challenge you to do exactly that. His name is Calvin Beecham. He is a two-time Walter Payton Man of the Year nominee. This means he's one of the great servants within the NFL. Great guy. After being drafted in the seventh final round of the 2012 NFL Draft, Kelvin will start his ninth season with the NFL Arizona Cardinals just next month. And while he loves playing football professionally, it's Kelvin's passion and purpose that is making a positive difference both on the field and off the field that I find most intriguing. As the oldest of four siblings growing up in rural Texas, Kelvin grew up in a family hovering just around the national poverty line. They didn't have much. And yet with his parents' guidance, he learned to share whatever excess they did have with their community. In today's episode, you're going to be challenged. You're going to be challenged to take whatever time or treasure, talents that you may have, and multiply them. To put them to work for something, whether it's in your profession, in your marriage, in your singleness, in your life, to some cause even greater than yourself. Kelvin is a model citizen of doing this, both on the field and off. For the football fans, you're going to love this message. And for those of you trying to make the world a better place because you are part of it, you also are going to love this episode. So here we go. I want you to strap that helmet on firmly, make sure it's on square, grab that football as I welcome on my friend and soon to be yours. His name is Kelvin Beecham. Kelvin, welcome to Live Inspired with John O'Leary. What's going on? Thanks for having me. I'm delighted. As curious as my kids were about football, they were curious about 68 last night, and they, they were wondering, Daddy, when he gets asked what he does for a living by his kids' friends, when they come over to his house, what does he say he does for a living? So I thought, man, that's a good question for a kid to ask, but maybe it's a good question for a podcast host to ask as well. Man, the thing is, is I have a different response every time, honestly. What's so funny, man, is, is my kids, uh, you know, you asked the question from a kid's standpoint. My kids will tell you that daddy goes and plays with his friends. 
<laughs> so it's funny, man. You know, I got a I got a five year old, a two year old, and a one year old. You know, when I leave the house, all right, daddy, you gonna go play with your friends? I'm like, yep, I'm gonna go play with my friends. I walk around like with clothes that and and in attire that most people wouldn't consider a football player to be walking around there. I like being comfortable. I'm wearing sweats. I'm wearing some slides. I want to be normal. I try to make life as normal as possible. I try to make life for my kids as normal as possible, considering the the spotlight that's on me and my family. Because I understand that, yes, I play football, but I'm, I'm called to do things that are way, way bigger than, than football and, and, and do it in way different genres than just on the football field. You're doing it today in Phoenix, Arizona, but that's not where the story began. So I'm going to I'm gonna rewind the, the game tape back a little bit farther and a, a state or two over. Back to Texas we go, Mejia, Texas. I'm glad you said it right first time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, Mejia, I've never been through, but tell me about Mejia, Texas. I have to use different location references to be able to, to tell you where Mejia is, but 40 miles east of Waco, about an hour and a half south of Dallas, right off of 45 a very country town, 7,500 people, and absolutely love everything uh, about my hometown. Uh, I always tell folks we actually have more cattle than we have people mm. in Mahia, Texas. But love my hometown, was was blessed to be raised, um, especially in a, today's environment by, you know, both parents. I have both parents in, in, in the home, mother and father that, that loved their children, who are the oldest of four, and they love God. People talk about, you know, where you grew up at, I grew up in a a home where church was everything, man. I know before we was talking about, you know, sometimes we have people that are, are Baptist, man. I was Pentecostal, man, so we was in church all the time. <laughs> Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and all day Sunday, literally. But man, I wouldn't trade anything for it. You mentioned the words mother and father and how fortunate you were to have both in your life. I want to come back to them in a moment, but you also had another individual who was uh, incredibly important for you. And the more I've learned your story, the more I've been amazed by this guy's life. Talk about your grandfather. Uh, J.W. Beecham, you can speak to this just as well as, you know, you, you have circumstances that happen in your life, things that, that you come into contact with, uh, experiences that you have come in contact with. And my grandfather has been blind since he was 19. You know, we've heard he was, I've never asked my grandfather what really happened to um, become blind. What I can say is, after he was blind, or since I've known, since I've been alive, all I've seen is perseverance, grit. I've seen just a normal human being. I never see my grandfather as anything other than J.W. Beach. He taught me how to fish, literally. You know, when I was young, we used to go over and work on cars. You know, I think that's where my love of cars came from was, you know, spending time with my grandfather and my dad. Uh, and I look at my son now and he goes to sleep every night with a, with a car, you know, in the truck. So it's like, you know, it, he has such an influence on me. I mean, the, you know, the way in which I get up and go about my day, being up early before the sun rises, you know, it started with the patriarch in my family, which is my grandfather, just the grinding mentality. And you can take that either way. And I get that, that mindset and that just that grinding mentality from my grandfather. I'm not saying that, Hey, the only way you going to be successful is you don't sleep at night. It's just, that's just how things happen to work out. But those types of features in me, those characteristics, those traits, came from my grandfather. It's, it's persistence, it's yeah. perseverance, it's grit. And he comes at you every single day, no matter what you got going on. And he, I mean, I've, I've never known him to be sick, ever. 
him falling down, he finds a way to get back, you know, get back up, even at this age. And I and I consider it an everyday inspiration, an ordinary a, a, a person that's doing just very ordinary things, and it seems extraordinary, but he's doing the ordinary. You talk about yourself, the things that you've been through. You're an ordinary person, but when people look around and what you're doing, you're doing extraordinary things, just doing ordinary things. But I find that to be so valuable. I find that to be such a blessing in my life and something that I cherish. Well, certainly been passed on to his grandson. It's also something I think your dad has. And one of the quotes I heard your father share with you when you were a boy, and I'm just fascinated by it. I'm going to read it word for word. He said, you've got to learn how to lose before you learn how to win. Tell me what that means. Sometimes you have to be able to experience failure to really appreciate the successes in life. And I could be just literally just talk about what's currently going on in my life. You know, and I hate to, to bring football into the equation so early in the conversation. I played for the, the New York Jets. I had a great experience there in New York. I had two kids while I was in New York. Uh, my family grew. Uh, I, I developed as an individual, as a person. But I didn't win a lot on the football field. And I look at where I'm at right now with, with the Cardinals, and I'm winning. Not No fault of my own. It's just God put me in a place where – I was going through a chapter in life in New York, and now I'm, you know, going through a chapter here in Arizona. But it goes back to what my dad I always talked about. You got to learn how to lose before you can learn how to win. I have such a deep appreciation, an even deeper appreciation, for what is currently going on in my football career now than what I had the last three or four years of losing situations in Jacksonville. I was, I want to say, three and twelve and. New York my first year. I mean, I ain't won over seven games since I left <laughs> Pittsburgh in 2015. So it's all those experiences make what's going on right now so rich. And I want to do everything that I can to make sure that I'm, I'm a positive contributor to the team, positive contributor in the locker room, because I realize how hard it is just to get a win. So mm -hmm. when my dad talks about, hey, you need to learn how to lose before you can learn how to win, you have such a deep, you hate losing. I hate losing more than I, I love winning. <laughs> You know, uh, because I love winning, but I, even with wins, I'm always finding out or looking at me. What if we would have did this? How much better could we have played? What if we did that? How much better could we have played? But I don't think I would be as analytical if I didn't have those hardships, those hard times and those failures. When did you realize as a young man that you had the drive, the physique, the talent to not only play in a town of 7,000 and make the football team, but maybe even play at a college level? If my best friend, who was the best man at my wedding, Chad High, would have never said he wanted to play professional football when we were like seventh or eighth grade, mm -hmm. I don't think I've e I don't think I've ever would have said that I can also play professional football too. It's hard for me to say when I knew I had what it took to get to the collegiate level. Right. For me, the number one thing was, hey, I don't want to be in Mahia working at no disrespect, Mahia State School, which is one of the employers in that area, Walmart or McDonald's. I wanted to do something with myself. I wanted to get out of my hair. And my parents stressed, hey, I want you to go get education, but we can't pay for it. So you're either going to get it on the academic side or you're going to get it on the, the athletic side. And that was my way out. I had no, you know, you know, every kid, I, I can't, you can't tell me there's not a kid that doesn't watch a professional basketball, baseball, football, soccer, bowling, you know, any type of professional sport, tennis, what have you, can't envision themselves saying, hey, I want to, I would love to be in that person's shoes. We all have that dream, but I think it's, it's circumstances and, 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 and 
you know, direction and guidance that gets us from point A to point B, point B to point C and et cetera. But I think for me early on, there was no clear cut way that said, hey, I knew that I had what it took to get from high school to college. And, and I, I would be lying to say I knew exactly what I, who I was, what I was, because I wasn't the biggest guy. I wasn't the strongest. I wasn't the most talented on the team. I wasn't the most highly recruited. I wasn't a highly touted individual on the team. It was, it was many other players that were better than me on my team. Omar Lara, which is our running back in, in high school. Kendrick Johnson, which was the running back and the quarterback. Uh, Edward Adams, who was a quarterback and a uh, and a running back and a safety, Jeremy Tarver, guys that were on my team that were way better than my best friend, Chad High, uh, who was better than I was. So for me, it was, I can't say that I had all the tools that were necessary for me to get from high school to college. In doing a little bit of legwork around this, I was trying to find some stats from your high school, college, and of course the NFL. NFL was easiest, but to be honest, man, it's hard to find stats on an offensive lineman. You got to re- you got to really pull back the covers quite a bit, which is revealing. You can find any stat around a defensive player, a receiver, a quarterback, a running back. The stats are all, all out there. You got to really dig to find the offensive lineman, which means in some regards, it's um, a position that requires a bit more humility to talk about that. Talk because many of our listeners tune in from around. We have listeners from 74 different countries last week. Some of them probably have never seen a football game. What does an offensive lineman do? Describe what you do uh, on, a, on a football field. Everybody knows who the quarterback is. Everybody knows who the running back is. Everybody knows who the receivers are. Those people cannot operate if the offensive line is not one, intact, two, on the same level, and three, don't care about the glory. We don't care about the shine. We, we, we can't afford to, because if we don't do our jobs, the people behind us and the people that are dependent on us can't do their jobs. It's not like, you know, Michael Jordan can go out and do everything on his own. It's not like, you know, it's not like Serena Williams. That's, that's a different type of sport. Like you need those five people up front to do their jobs. And if those five people up front are not doing their jobs, nobody else can do their job. The offensive line is there to protect the quarterback, protect the ball, protect the quarterback when he's passing, to open up holes for, for the running back when the ball is being ran. And then when, you know, receivers need to get open, holding their blocks long enough for receivers to get open. You know, we talk about this quite a bit, our profession, but offensive line play is a thankless job. Right. Thankless. You get no credit when you, you get blamed you, when you do the job and you get all the blame when right. things don't go well. It's many times the only time your name is ever mentioned or called in a football telecast is because you had a penalty. You had a false start or a hold. That's the only time your name will ever be called in a football game. So for offensive linemen, you have to have very, 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 you got to have skin that's so thick as a, as a rhino in South Africa. Your, 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 your skin has to be so thick because you're always getting the blame for anything that happens. But the thing is, is you relish it. You enjoy the burden and the weight that comes with offensive line play and not everybody is built for that right you know some people are not built to take on that type of blame and that type of uh criticism you know game in game out week in and week out you know and not only from people outside of the building but people in the building so you have to be very you have to be mentally tough you have to be mentally stable you have to be able to just to thrive in spite of everything that's going on around you because again 
you're required to do a job. But if you can't do that job, you can't play this position. Mm-hmm. Um, and I consider it one of the hardest positions in the National Football League. Because the thing is, is we're going, okay, think about this. Human biomechanics. As a person walking down the street, how many times do you see somebody literally walking backwards down the street? <laughs> Think about it. You never see anybody walking backwards down the street. Well, in our profession, especially for offensive linemen, you're most of the game, if you're passing the ball, you're going backwards and you got somebody that's moving forwards. Kinetic energy says, <laughs> you know, this person is moving forward while you're moving backwards. It's going to be a meeting at the quarterback. But as an offensive lineman, you got to meet power with power and push that person that's going forwards backwards as you're going backwards right you know so it is a a a very interesting job one again one that i wouldn't trade anything for and when i when i hope that that people can understand just a little bit um about the 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 process of being an offensive lineman and what what it what it entails so knowing you and i were going to be talking today i watched the game less to watch the quarterback or your running back or the receivers, but to watch you out there, man. And it it really made the game so much more dependent upon the names that were never being called. Like you you Mm -hmm. only hear whoever's holding the ball being announced. And yet the only reason why you are able to hear those names in the first place is because you and the four fellows next to you were doing what you were supposed to be doing. Man, this this kid from a small town in Texas goes on to SMU. We could talk more about football, but I'm, I'm going to shift gears a little bit. Scholar athlete. Usually, when we hear scholar athlete, we uh, we focus on the second part of that. You truly were a scholar while you were in school. What what drove you to excel? I had a, a mother that wasn't afraid to to put her hands on me. I put it that way to start <laughs> off. I don't think we're in a in a climate now where that's allowed my mother did not play when it came to my grades and, and we called my mother the mediator and we called our dad the enforcer because it, if it ever got past my mom, we knew it was it, it was going to be some things that were going to be said and done that we might not have been ready for even at the collegiate level i still fear my parents today my mother <laughs> and my father i say yes sir no sir when they talking you know when grown folks talking i don't talk you know even though i'm, I'm, I'm grown <laughs> And got and got three kids, got three of their grandkids. But that drive came from from them because, you know, it's it's crazy to go back to my grandfather, but my grandfather always told my dad that he sees the world through him. Mm. My dad, as we were leaving the the house, he said that he sees the world through us. You know, my dad had an eighth grade education. So for him, us going to college was was a huge deal. And we knew each of us, all four of us, all went to college, uh, graduated as well, that we needed to go and accomplish what our dad needed us to accomplish. So for me, it's been like always going out to, I wouldn't say try to prove, but doing something special that I know my dad wanted to do. My dad was the oldest of nine kids and he had to drop out of school at the eighth grade to, to help my grandfather work on cars. So he never got to experience high school. He never got to experience college. He never got to experience real adulthood. Uh, adulthood for for me that was such a a huge thing to go and aspire to be something special. And when I got to college, I struggled, and I don't think many people talk about the struggles. By my freshman year, I was taking electrical engineering. Professor Gosney, my first exam, I made a nineteen. 
I, I don't even know if they, they documented that, but I made a 19 on my first test. You know, I went to him and I was like, hey, you know, Dr. Gosney, you know, what, what do I need to do to, you know, what I need to do to be able to just, just pass the class? Uh, he said, listen, I need you to sit at the front row of every class, take notes, come and see me when you don't understand, understand something, we'll figure it out. Found a way to get a C in the class, but the first semester was hard. Coming from Mahaya and, and going to a very esteemed institution in, in SMU, I struggled that first semester. Uh, struggled that first year until I got my, my, my feet up under me. But it was the exposure that I was willing to go outside of my comfort zone to reach people who I had nothing in common with, who yeah. I had no previous affiliation with, and learn from them. And I take pride in learning from other people and learning from people that I have no affiliation with. We may not have the same religion. We may not be from the same socioeconomic background. We may not be from the same ethnic background, but it's something that I can learn from you that I find to be extremely valuable to, to who I am as a person. And I love sharing journeys uh, yeah. and sharing journeys with, again, people that I don't know and sharing journeys, sharing my journey with people that I don't know, because it's something that, that each of us can pull from one another as we're going down this journey. And I can say from a scholarly standpoint, that's been the focus, just being intellectually curious. And it's taken me places that I never thought were, were humanly possible. Uh, including to be a commencement speaker for SMU. And I'm, I'm blown away by this man, this kid who got a 19 out of 100 in that first freshman year class and barely snuck through with a C, ends up not only graduating in three or three and a half, but eventually you get your MBA as well right behind it. And you're invited to be the commencement speaker. Do you remember what your address was about? I haven't looked at it in years. What I do remember, being candid, is uh, it wasn't an MBA. It was a it was a uh, MS, so a Master of Liberal Studies. But after I graduated three and a half years, and the reason for graduating three and a half years because I wanted an opportunity to to go to the draft early. They told me I wasn't you know quite ready, so I stayed back a year. You know, I petitioned the dean of the Simmons School of Education to get a master's in sixteen months, which is all I had. I only had sixteen months to to get this done in, so I had to get a master's and you know had to hustle to get this master's in 16 months and the dean at the time dean sharp we have a very very good relationship said that kelvin i don't think that that's possible you're an athlete full-time athlete still playing football i just don't know if you can you know accomplish the rigors of this program of this master's program at that and play football um, and get this done all before your eligibility runs out what i did was i proposed a plan i put i put the plan together of, of what i what i had to do to the classes I had to take, the winter courses that I had to take, the summer courses that I had to take to get this accomplished. It was a lot of back and forth between the academic center there at SMU and, and, and the dean of, of Simmons, Dean Shard. I finally got in. I finished the first year. And the last semester, I was actually training for the combine in Indianapolis, Indiana, while I was taking classes at SMU and finished it, graduated. <laughs> As I graduated, the same guy who told me that I wasn't going to be able to come into this program was the same guy that introduced me at the commencement at SMU, you know, 16 months later. So that was a very, very special moment. All yeah. I can remember is I have a video of my dad actually shedding tears. It's cut onions when, when he happens to be uh, letting a tear right. roll. That was such a special moment. And I understand you spoke about stereotypes and bias. Yes. Yes. That's relevant when you're a young man just about to enter the NFL draft. And it is highly relevant in the days that you and I currently find ourselves living in. What, what, tell me what you're hoping to convince 
or convict an SMU graduating class with when you talk about stereotypes and bias? The first thing that I wanted to, to address to the audience was I was that stereotype. I was that bias. And this is where the stereotype and bias brought me. And sometimes I think people will take the victim mentality and say, hey, this is what happened to me. This is how I'm stereotyped. This is the bias that, that is formed against me. But I try to flip that thing and, and try to find the positive in that. And yes, this is what's, these are the boundaries that have been placed on me. These are the uh, stereotypes that have been placed on me. And, I, and the thing is, I'm not talking about color. I'm not talking about ethnicity. I'm talking about mentally, hmm. physically. Because the thing is, is when people may have heard me saying or talking about that speech, they were saying, well, you know, you were, you were a black man. No, I was an athlete that is not supposed to be educated to do this. As, a, as, a, as an athlete, I'm not supposed to be a 6'3", 308-pound lineman to go and start at left tackle when the stereotype, quote-unquote, boundaries for left tackle is 6'7", 330. I don't fit that mold. So for me to, to be able to talk about that, those particular concepts from a number of different angles, I just wanted to, to, to relate a message to you know, the audience that, yes, those things exist, but what are you gonna do about it? You know, Mike, Mike Tyson thing. always talked about, you know, everybody has a plan until they get hit in the mouth. You're gonna be hit in the mouth with life. COVID has hit everybody in the mouth. If you're in California, you're getting hit by wildfires. If you in the Gulf Coast, you're getting hit by hurricanes. If you're on the East Coast, on the Southeast Coast, you get hit by hurricanes. It's all sorts of things that are hitting us in the mouth. And the question is, is what are you gonna do about it? And I find that to be something that we all need to understand and all need to cope with because life is real. <laughs> and, and, and you know, I hate to, hate to get preachy with you, but the thing is, is if you understand that you're gonna get hit in the mouth, where's your source? What, are you plugged into your source? Do you have a relationship? And, and it, was, it was so funny. We was we had chapel this weekend, and we were talking about relationship versus fellowship. Relationship, yes, I know God, but fellowship is I'm walking with God to be able to go through these instances, these circumstances, and be able to have the mental fortitude, the spiritual fortitude, the willingness to go through these things, understanding that yes, I've been hit in the mouth, but I have something. I have something to draw from. I have strength to draw from. First of all, the fact that we all do get punched in the mouth, we all do get knocked down upon the mat, and then we need to tap into the source. And I, I think most of us may not even know what you're referring to. Many of us don't. Like this, the source, what do you mean? Why not go there next? When you say, John, yeah. I got to sometimes just tap into the source. What source are you talking about? I'm, I'm talking about our Heavenly Father, God. I'm talking about Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and I'm talking about the Holy Spirit, which leads and guides us in our everyday life. Uh, that's the source that I'm talking about. The source that, that you know, the Bible talks about, look, look up into the hills from which come out all of our help. All of our help comes from God. That's a verse that my kids are realizing right now because it's certain things daddy can't do. Mama can't do. Granny can't do. Nana can't do. It's things that you have to look to our Heavenly Father for that, that need to happen. And the thing is, is, you know, I'm not talking about, you know, something I read out of a book. I'm not talking about something I read out of the Bible. I'm talking about things that I've, I've, I've had to experience, literally. When you, when you blow your knee out, ACL, MCL, meniscus, and have total knee reconstruction, they're not expecting you to play football again. They're not expecting you to play football at a high level again. That happened to me in 2015, 2020. I got 100 and over 100 starts playing offensive line in the National Football League. Again, going back to stereotypes and bias, 
that that come along with some of the circumstances that come in our life. And that's nothing but supernatural power. It's nothing but supernatural healing. It's nothing that I could have done. It's nothing that it's the people that God has put around me, the team that he's put around me. It's, it's nothing that I, I could have thought of on my own. But people, God working through people and, and, and the Holy Spirit leading and guiding me to be able to say these are, the, these are the people that God has put here to be able to make decisions, how to best use and get the most use out of this vessel that he's given me. So before I think the injuries, October, maybe October 18th of 20, what, 2015, before that happens, my friend, you're drafted. You're drafted in the seventh run. You're the final lineman taken. You mentioned yeah. earlier, John, I love winning, but I hate losing more. I hate losing. <laughs> so in, in thinking about the success you've achieved in your professional career and where it came from, mm-hmm. not only a town of 7,000, but a smaller college SMU, you know, does it not necessarily yeah. pedigree. And then to be the last pick, how motivated were you as a young man to, to prove the other uh, six and a half rounds wrong? It's something that I'm still working on. The goal and the, um, the motivation is still, it hasn't left. You know, you know, people will say, well, Kevin, you got drafted. Yes, I am grateful I got drafted. But the same day that I was drafted, I was pissed off as well. And I'm still pissed off <laughs> because of the position that, that I'm in right now. And it's not, not, not a bad position. It's just that's where I started at. That's not where I'm finishing at, though. I started last, but I've made it a lot longer than a lot of people in that draft, in the 2012 draft. And I'm one of those people, I told you, I'm a, I'm a hoarder of information. Mm-hmm. I actually keep track of everybody that was drafted ahead of me. So I actually have a, a, a Google spreadsheet that keeps up with, with everybody that was, that was drafted ahead of me. So that is something that I think about on a, on a regular basis. And for me, it, it allows me to be grateful for the things that have happened in my life. Grateful for where I started grateful yeah. for where I've come, grateful for where I am right now, and grateful for where I may be going in the future. You know, that motivation and that burning, it does not rest. That same type of adversity that my grandfather endured, me playing football is easy. If he can endure, you know, being blind for 70 plus years, I can be able to fight my way onto a roster and stay on a roster for a couple of years. So it's for me, it's, the, it's, it's that perspective that I think each of us need to have is, Yes, we we have things that that are that are going rough in our life, but there are a lot of other circumstances in other folks' lives that that are that are much different. For me, one of the reasons that I've done the things that I've done philanthropically, whether it's with hunger, whether it's with water, it's great that I have a pantry full of, of food. But what about you know people in uh, when I was in Pittsburgh, you know people in the Hills District, when I was in Jacksonville, people on the North Side, when I was in New York, people in some of the poorest boroughs in the country, in Texas in the southern part of Dallas, now here in Arizona, you know, on the south side of Phoenix and in, in places in, in little pockets in Mesa and, uh, and Ahwatukee. From a water standpoint, there's, there's people that have no access to water on a global scale. You have people, when I went to Honduras, people that were having a, kids that were literally having to walk up, you know, miles and miles of hills just to get access to water. And then sometimes the water wasn't even clean, understanding the, the some of the effects of, of not having access to clean water in, in certain parts of Africa and Southeast Asia. So it's one of those things where, yes, I realize what I have, but there are others that don't have. And how can I make sure that I'm thinking about that as I'm thanking God for what I have? And then how can I go and serve some of those folks who don't have those types of resources, don't have some of that, that same type of access? Walter Payton, Man of the Year nominee. It's an incredible honor 
to be nominated among a room full of generous guys as one of the most generous in the entire league. And you're also one of the most dedicated guys to the craft, just to be on the field, to stay on the field and to stay in the starting lineup. How do you blend the focus athletically and the drive to be the best with the drive to be the best off the field? Because it seems like they're competing against one another. I would even say I'm trying to be the best off the field when it comes to giving or serving. Like, I just want to be the best server that I can be. And where I see a need, I want to go serve that need. Simple as that. I'm not trying to be the best at it. I now I'm trying to do it with excellence. Right. Because I think that's what I'm called to do is do it with excellence. I don't want to, you know, do it half-heartedly. You know, I don't want to do it grudgingly. I don't want to do it with with you know a, a, a bit in my mouth and being forced to do it. I want to do it because I love to. I want to do it because I'm passionate about it. So it's one of those things where it's not like I'm trying to compete with others trying to do stuff off the field. No, I want to do what I've been called to do, what I've been called to serve at, and I want to do it with excellence, and I want to do it with passion, and I want to bring the, the right people together, and I want to collaborate. Like, more than anything, I love working with people. It's hard to do stuff by yourself, and I think collaboration is one of the most important things, and, and one of the things that I think we miss it in, in society right now. I think we miss, miss the collaboration in our country right now, but it's like the ability to want to collaborate. I want to collaborate. I want to do stuff with others. Like, how can we do this together? Like, why do we have to be in silos and doing stuff in silos? Why can't we do it together? So it's not about being the best at, you know, doing things off the field. It's like, how can we do this together? And how can we make the most impact? And how can I, at the end of the day, serve and serve with excellence? Kevin, you spent a lot of time in a locker room, man. And uh, I think from the outsiders looking in, it seems like a bunch of good-looking, athletic guys, jocks, who all probably all act and eat and look and uh, worship the exact same. And of course, that's not at all true. It's com- it's a complete mixture of different yeah. types of human beings trying to do life as best they can. And yet yeah. you guys are trying to figure out a way throughout the course of a season to do life well together. What have you learned in a locker room that we could maybe do a better job applying outside of one? Learning how to be rational. I think that's the first thing is just the simple concept of being rational. But one thing that I love about a locker room is no matter the color, no matter where they came from, the hills of West Virginia, the mountains of Montana, the, the northwest of Seattle, the L.A. swag of South, uh, of South California, where I'm at in Texas or the south, the deep south in, in Mississippi or Alabama, in a locker room, people are willing to just be rational. The thing is, it's crazy. It's like if you're a Republican or you're a Democrat, it's like you don't even want to sit next to each other anymore. And the thing about it is, why can't me and a teammate who he has some views, I have some views, why can't we have dialogue and it not turn into something where we biting each other's neck off? And I think in a locker room, you have the ability to have people literally, and I mean literally, from all walks of life, all economic backgrounds, mixed race, all black, all white, Republicans, Democrats, liberals, conservatives, atheists, Judaism, Christianity, Protestant. I mean, you name it, it's been in the locker room. And it's crazy that all that stuff can be put aside for us to have one common goal. And that goal is to come together on Sunday and not only come together on Sunday, but come together on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday for 17 plus weeks every year. And even during the off season, come together to find a way to work towards a common goal. And that is never something that is hindering that relationship ever in a locker room. So for me, rational. 
and then the ability, and I talked about this earlier, to just collaborate. Well, man, I think the way we have it set up right now is akin to the offense hating the defense on the same team. And this idea of drawing a line, <laughs> we're wearing the same uniform, the same logo is on the helmet, and we ought to be moving in the same direction. So I'm completely yeah. with you on this collaboration approach. Uh, final question for you, my friend, before we shift into the Live Inspired 7. I've heard you say on many interviews that you love adversity. And I've also heard you say, John, well, you've said it not to me yet, but you're about to say it to me. You hang four words above your day. Trust God, embrace adversity. It is a must. Because it's been it's been points in my life where I didn't know if there was a God. I didn't know if God cared about me. I didn't know if he cared about my well-being. I didn't know if he cared about my future. But those four words have been something that I've held my hat on uh, since early on in my college career, honestly. I had to go out on my own. I was not under the the, the tutelage of my, my parents anymore. I was out on my own, and I needed something to hold my hat on. It's one of those things where I trust God and I embrace adversity. And the thing is, is adversity builds character. And I know that sounds so cliche, but it is it's so true. You know, I used to have this, uh, this coach in Pittsburgh, Mike Tomlin. He used to talk about, I don't want people that seek comfort. I don't want comfort seekers. Stop seeking comfort. And if you look at some of the, the, the most successful people in modern history, they've been people that don't seek comfort. They are finding ways to not so much embrace adversity, but go meet adversity, go seek it out because you need that in your life. You can't stay in, in this little bubble, bubble wrapped and expect to go and accomplish everything that God has in store for you. Um, so everything that you may be inspiring to do. With that being said, I'm curious, your experience growing up was far from bubble wrapped. You had a, an incredible grandfather, incredible set of parents, but not an easy childhood, you know? Yeah. And does yeah. it worry you as a father of three with a wildly successful uh, starting point for those three, that they're going to end up a little bit more bubble wrapped and a little bit more uh, afraid of adversity than, than you were? So I'm one of those crazy fathers that, that produces adversity on purpose, honestly. The thing is, is, is I've been blessed in a way where my childhood shaped who I am. Right now, the way that I structure things in my kid's life is to try to build that type of adversity in different points in times. The stresses are different, but what I'm trying to accomplish is being very intentional about how to raise my kids, mm. being very intentional about not spoon feeding them, not allowing them to, to have the entitlement that can come with the success that we have. And that's why, you know, I say I'm going to go play with my friends because that's what I'm doing. I'm not doing anything that any other person isn't doing. If you're going to work, what are you going to do? You're going to go play with your friends. You're going to go work with your friends, right? I want to make things as normal as possible. And it's something that we work on, me and my wife both, work on religiously. I grew up where two pair of jeans was the two pair of jeans for the entire year. And you bet not mess them up. The one pair of shoes that you got is the one pair of shoes you got for the year. And you bet not mess them up. Your church, your church clothes are your church clothes. Your play clothes are your play clothes. And you bet not mess them up, you know? And I look at my kids now and people may say, well, Kevin, you got too much money for your kids to be walking around like that. I don't want my kids to be spoiled. Um, we have one TV. One TV is in the living room. Everybody watches the same TV. I'll make that a habit because that's what I grew up on. We have seven questions that let, that tie all of our guests together. 
And um, the very first one, I've heard you answer this before, actually. So I think I know what I'm about to hear. But what is the best, most influential book you've ever read? Tuesdays with Mari. That is one of my favorites. Um, a book about gratefulness, a book about death, which all of us are going to have to face at some point. But a book, well, I would say one of the first books that I can recall that I really enjoyed reading cover to cover uh, and read it early on in my college development years. We've had Mitch on the podcast a couple times and uh, his heart is as good as that book. So uh, you've, you've read not only a great book, but written by a great guy. What's one positive characteristic or one trait that you possessed as a little boy that you wish you exhibited as brilliantly today? That's a hard question. I think I was way more artistic when I was a, a little boy. You know, it's funny, I got I have Dragon Ball Z socks on right now. I'm a huge Dragon Ball Z fan. When I was younger, I used to draw a ton. I mean, every character you could think about in Dragon Ball Z, I, I drew. But I think as, as I got older, the ability to want to do something artistic yeah. has changed. If your home caught fire and your, your wife and your three babies are all out safely, your animals are all out safely, you have an opportunity to run in and grab one item, one thing from the house. What's the one thing you come running back outside with? The house is burning. I got everybody out. I would be okay with the house burning down. I've lived a blessed life. And if, if God wants to take it all away, I'm fine with that. I think I got a, a pretty decent memory where I can remember some of those experiences, both good and bad. So um, if I got all my family out, that that is, for me, that's the most important thing. If And I've told my wife, if everything is taken away from us and I still have my family, I'm a blessed man. Thank you. It's beautiful. If you you could sit on a bench, not on a sideline of a football stadium, but if you could sit on a bench on a gorgeous day overlooking a beach and have a long conversation with anybody, living or dead, who would you want to have that nice long conversation with? That conversation would be with Jesus Christ, my Lord. What advice would you give your 20-year-old self? Oh, boy. Man, you're asking some tough questions. Live in the moment. Man, I, I think I was so engaged, especially once I got to college, engaged in wanting to be the best on the football field, wanting to get a degree, wanting to prove so many people wrong, wanting to go and you know, make my, my family proud that I just didn't live in the moment. And I, I don't regret anything, but to my 20 year old self, I would just say, try to live in the moment. Mm. Kelvin Beecham, it has been said that all great people can have their lives summed up in one sentence. How would you like yours to read? He used everything that God gave him. You know, as you were talking, the whole conversation, I'm thinking about the parable of the talents and this idea, whether you get five, three or one, it doesn't really matter. It is about multiplying. It's about taking yeah. and doing great things with it. So this one desire you have to use the gifts that you've received for something bigger than yourself, you are doing it on the football field and off. And it has been an honor to uh, have you on the Live Inspired podcast. Thanks so much for having me. My friends, that is Calvin Beecham. I am John O'Leary. And today is your day live inspired my friends if you enjoyed this episode as much as i enjoyed bringing it to you there's a couple ways that you can live this going forward the first is to be reminded of a quote that kelvin shared midway through our conversation our current circumstances do not need to dictate where we are going in life it's a great reminder from kelvin our current circumstances do not need to dictate where we are going in life. And if you want to step into this football mantra of not only excelling on the field, but off as well, 
let me encourage you to check out one of my favorite episodes of all time with one of my favorite human beings of all time. It is two-time NFL MVP, former St. Louis, that's right, Los Angeles, former, former St. Louis Rams quarterback, my buddy Kurt Warner. We did an episode with Kurt Warner right before the release of his movie. It's episode 264. If you can't find it right there, join me online. You can find it on my primary website, johnolearyinspires.com forward slash podcast. My friends, for this time and until next time, my name is John O'Leary. Today is your day. What a gift. Live inspired. One thing I love most about my friends at Keeley Companies is their spirit and their passion for giving back to their communities across the nation. Keeley Companies was recently named a top corporate philanthropist by the St. Louis Business Journal, and I could not think of a more deserving organization to receive that honor. In 2021 alone, the Keeley Cares Foundation served countless people in need donated more than $2 million, and served for more than 20,000 hours. On top of that, they added an astounding 13 new charities to their ever-growing wall of compassion. Here at the Live Inspired Podcast, we are proud to partner with Keeley Cares throughout the year, improving our communities with time, with talent, and with treasure. You can learn more about their unbelievable impact by visiting them online at keelycompanies.com.